You are listening to the Devoted Women's Podcast. This teaching is meant to be listened to after having completed the lesson in your workbook. We hope this teaching equips, encourages, and empowers you. Grace and peace. Last week, we read about how God doesn't leave his people ill-equipped to do his work, right? We saw that um, Apollos received correction with a humble spirit and a humble attitude. And because of that, he was able to go on and effectively um, proclaim the good the good news to other uh, other believers and help them in their walk and help them in their biblical instruction, but then also in correction, right, where maybe they needed some correcting and that he was effective with the Jews in refuting the truth. Um, and then we saw that God continued that work of equipping uh, those who belong to him as we read of how um, the Holy Spirit finally allowed Paul to go into Asia, right? And where he stopped in Ephesus on the other side. And there he found John the Baptist's disciples, right? And he was able to fill in some gaps for them that Messiah had come and he had lived, he had suffered, he had died, and then he resurrected. And with him came a new baptism, right? And with him came the gift of of the Holy Spirit. This They really needed all this information, right? And um, Angela, she pointed out for us that the baptism that John the Baptist proclaimed um, could be likened to a baptism of preparation, right? These people um, took John's baptism. They underwent that baptism with a heart of repentance, and they were looking forward to Messiah. They knew stuff was happening and on the move, and God was doing something, and so they were expectant. And then Um, we saw that the baptism of Jesus was a baptism of acceptance and that his baptism is a way to unite with him, right? We are baptized in his name and in his um, death and in his resurrection, right? And we're united in that. And I just always think of um, our baptism services here where they say that they're buried in the likeness of his death and then we're raised to walk in newness of life and, and we're yoked to him in that. It's just such a beautiful picture. Um, And then Angie, in all her zeal for the crazy things of scripture, we really like to get down on the weird things in the Bible. Y'all like Nephilim? Like, that's just a good time for us. But she taught us how um, she, she taught us how the handkerchiefs and those aprons, right, that somehow had the healing power of God on them. Um, those Those things and other instances in the Bible, like when Moses threw down his staff and it became a serpent or whenever he's like stuck his hand in his cloak and then it came back out leprous. And whenever the water came forth from the the rock, like all of those things um, are a means for belief. So God uses the miraculous. He allows people to work miracles, right? And he works miracles through people so that he can display his power and his glory. And ultimately, ultimately, those things are for belief and that the salvation that comes from that, from that belief and that faith, that's the true miracle. Like it wasn't the water coming from the rock that like quenched their thirst in the desert, in the wilderness. That wasn't it. It was that they chose to believe in him, right? And so salvation is the true miracle. And then last week we were left off with the riot in Ephesus. And we saw that insanity just begets more insanity. And thousands and thousands filled the theater and they were filled with the confusion, right? It was very specific. They were all wrapped up in that bubble of just 
spiritual oppression, really. And they were all a part of the confusion. And I just, in my mind, I picture it like they were all plugged into that bubble and just kind of floating around in the, the crazy. And we saw that it was all started by one man, right, who was determined to protect his livelihood. At the end of the day, it was not about Artemis. It was not about Ephesus. It was about him and his job and wanting to have his own security. And in that, we got to see that the scheming of the enemy and how he used that one tiny little spark in that one man and it it ignited an entire blaze, right? And ultimately that blaze was targeted at Paul and the other believers who were with him. And so we saw that the devil doesn't mess around, but we also saw saw that God is sovereign and he has the final say. And he used a pagan, right? He used the mayor of the town to shut the whole thing down. And I think in that he was wanting Paul to see and wanting all the other believers around him to see that sometimes he calls them to be still and to know that he is God and to know that the Lord of hosts of angel armies, right? That they, that he is with them, right? And um, that's a truth that we pull from Psalm 46:10, and he just was showing Paul that, showing those believers that, that they can be still and let him work things out without ever having to lift a finger. In some instances, in some instances, he says, now lift all of your fingers, I'm going to use all of them. So um, moving on where we're at in our lesson today, um, Acts 20 verses 1 through 16, Paul sends for his disciples after there's some sense of safety after that riot. Um only to bid them farewell, right? He gathers them all up to say goodbye, but not without a bit of encouragement first. And after what they just witnessed, I'm going to purely speculate on what I think he might have said, pulling from Ephesians 6, um, verses 10 through 18, about the armor of God, right? He would have looked him right in the face and said, be strong in the Lord and in the power of his might, because in your power, you can't face any of this. It has to be in his power. Put on that armor, right? So that you can stand against the schemes of the devil and against um, your fight. It's not with all these people, right? It's not with any of these people that you're looking face to face with, but it's with the um, rulers and the authorities and the cosmic powers of this present darkness and the spiritual forces and the evil that exists in the heavenly places, the stuff that you can't see. The devil is at work and that's the cause of this horizontal insanity is it's the it's the devil and his minions coming after us and coming after you. So take up the whole armor of God, right? And put on that belt of truth. Take up the breastplate of righteousness. Grab your um, your shoes that are ready to proclaim the gospel of peace and take up your shield of faith that's gonna put out all of those arrows that are coming at you and um, protect your mind with the helmet of salvation. Trust in um, your security and in your hope, right? And then ultimately to take up the sword of the spirit to do the hard work which is the truth of God, which is the word of God, right? To remember what is true and remember what he says is true. And then ultimately to keep alert because it's not going to stop with all perseverance. And then remember to keep praying, to keep praying for yourself, for those around you and, and the saints everywhere. So from Ephesus, we see that Paul then travels to Macedonia and our text this week, it really, really moved so fast in just a couple sentences. And I don't know if you were there with your 
pin on your map, like, and like, and all of a sudden, like, we're on the complete other side of the map. And I guarantee you, it did not feel that fast for Paul, right? And his friends, they were likely worn out. And as we read in uh, verse or chapter 19, verse 21, Paul had already determined to take that path around Macedonia to make it back to Achaia, which would have included Corinth. And while the details are shortened to the point for us here um, in the book of Acts from Paul's other epistles, we can determine that here in these couple of short sentences that there was a lot that happened in this time frame. And so for Paul, ultimately, like I said, he knew he was going back to Corinth and that was something that was not resting easy on his heart because during Paul's stay in Ephesus, right, he was there for around three years, the message was relayed to him that disunity and dissension was running rampant in the church at Corinth. And as a result, he wrote 1 Corinthians. And shortly after writing that letter, he traveled to Corinth while staying in Ephesus. So he probably would have just hopped on a ship, traveled over to Corinth real quick, and then headed back to Ephesus, right? And when he was there, he was not received well. (laughs) His correction and his instruction, they wanted none of it. And in fact, there was a lot of conflict. And later in 2 Corinthians, he reflected on it as a painful visit. And when he... um, got back to Ephesus, he even mentioned in 2 Corinthians that he wrote them a tearful letter. Like he was upset about this. We don't have this letter, but he references it, right? And it was a tearful letter because this, all that had gone down with them, it was just such a messy situation, right? And because of that, we see before he heads off, he likely sent Titus over, and I'm getting all of this just from what we read in those other epistles, just so y'all know. He had sent Titus over to Corinth, likely by sea, because it's the quicker way, right? And then he had planned to meet with Titus as he got up to Troas, is where it's, it seems that they were supposed to meet up, because um, in 2 Corinthians, we read that Paul was troubled when Titus never showed up. So I can only imagine, like, oh, no, they killed him, or, like, such, it's real bad over there, and he's not here yet. Like, what's happening? Um But ultimately, we see that Paul moves on and heads towards Philippi and Thessalonica and Berea, right? Heads into the Macedonian area and meets up with Titus. And Titus, thank the Lord, brings good news, right? That they had chosen to be reconciled and that they'd chosen to receive his instruction and come underneath his authority. And ultimately, they received um, the truth, right? They received that they were not walking according to how God wanted them to walk. And so they came um, under submission to that. And um, so that's a lot that happened in two verses. Like, we don't see any of that from the book of Acts, but all that went down in this little trek on over to Corinthians, or to Corinthians, to Corinth. Um, And in verse 3, we we learn that um, upon his arrival in Corinth, Paul stayed there for three months. And this was likely the winter months when travel by sea would have been dangerous, so he would have been been delayed in his travels. But what we see is he chose to stay in Corinth where all this drama just went down, right? And that is just a testament to what God can do when he's in the middle of the reconciliation process. And so for us, I just want us to see that there is no situation um, in a relationship that is too big for God to work out reconciliation. And in fact, whenever we do travel through that hard process and we come out victorious on the other side because both parties have been in submission to his will, 
it's just another expression of the gospel because reconciliation is one of the key components to God's master plan of redemption. From the beginning of time when man sinned in the garden, it was his plan to reconcile man back to himself. And so when we walk through that process, it just shows the world that it's possible and that that's what God wants for them and that's what God wants for you and me as well. So when you want to turn right, on the detour around the conflict, right? Paul could have chosen to winter someone somewhere else along the journey. Um, stay the course. Stay the course. Stay on that road and trust that God is with you in that process and that he is for you. But here's this. He's for you and he's for that other person too. He's for all parties involved when reconciliation is concerned. So let God be your guide on that road and show up faithfully as he's leading you, even when it's hard. So, so far we have 1 Corinthians and then when Paul was up in Macedonia after he received that good news from Titus, he then wrote 2 Corinthians and would have likely sent it ahead of himself, right? And so then they would have received that letter. And then in his three-month stay... During the winter, Paul wrote the book of Romans, which is considered his masterpiece, right? It is the big, heavy-hitting book of the Bible in the New Testament. And um, ultimately, like the thesis statement of Romans is right there, and it's the one we've been referencing over and over and over. It's Romans 1, 16 and 17, where basically Paul is declaring that the gospel is for everyone. And in God's salvation comes righteousness through faith. And then whenever we're given that faith, it produces even more faith. So it's just such a beautiful picture. And Romans is a book that is full of rich theology and instruction for us as believers. It contains a lot of our doctrine and it's just a great book. And so I don't know about you, but I'm really glad that God blessed Paul with the time there to compose the blessing that is the book of Romans in the city of Corinth, where all the drama just went down. (laughs) It's good stuff. So when Paul was about to head out by sea to Syria, which would have made a much quicker trip back to Jerusalem. I don't know if you noticed that on your map, like we're down here in Corinth. He could have just like booped right on over to Syria. But upon hearing that there was people after him, right, that there was trouble waiting for him back in Syria, likely those Jews from Damascus and from Jerusalem that wanted his head and wanted him dead. They still wanted that. They were still not big fans of him. And so instead of heading straight over by boat, he actually chose to reroute and go back up through Macedonia, which would have taken him back through Berea and Philippi and Thessalonica. And there we see that he's issuing all these final goodbyes because he knows he's never coming back to that region. Like God is moving him on in his mission. And he goes on to say like, Hey, I put in the time with you people. Like I've given you what I can give you. And so he knows he's not coming back. And it is in second Corinthians that, and his letter to Romans, as y'all saw in your homework, that we find the whole reason for him taking that journey again anyways, because we know he's gone on that route before. Right. And we see he travels back through and then now he rerouted and went back again. But the whole reason he was going in the first place was to take up a donation for the needy Christians that were in Jerusalem. And the reason they would have needed donations, it's not just because they're poor. These people are now being persecuted to the max, right? And where they had a job, 
because they're now a Christian, their employer may have chosen to let them go. And because they're a Christian, people aren't just willingly hiring them because they come with a bunch of baggage, right? And people don't like them and they don't like what they're doing. And so they're detaching themselves. And maybe if they had a business before, no one's coming around anymore to buy from them. So business has probably dropped and they're, they're losing out in the livelihood aspect. And so what we see with this, um, with this donation being taken up is the church just coming alive in how God intended it to exist as a family coming together to care for one another. Um, we see that all these Gentiles and even the Jews, they're making no d- distinction between themselves, right? And these Gentiles specifically in all this region of Macedonia and Achaia and Troas and all these other regions, um, they're now embracing their role as adopted children into, into God's family, right? And caring for their Jewish brothers and sisters in a whole other part of the world. It's just truly, it's amazing. And in verse four, um, we're given a list of a bunch of people who jump on board the Paul train and like go on with him in his travels, right? And why do we think that is? We see that someone comes from Thessalonica. We see a Berean. We see um, Luke now is back in the picture, right? We see these personal pronouns now. We see we and we see us. And it's thought that maybe Luke was a representative of the church at Philippi. And it was because they now have a ton of money they're carrying, right? Tons of money and their safety and numbers. But not only is there safety and numbers while traveling this super long journey, there's also accountability to all that money, right? There's all these heads of these people um, who are not that they doubt Paul, but it's just good practice, right? To say like, hey, these people are going to go in this process of helping to distribute this money and make sure it's, it's going where it needs to go, right? So just good practice. And it's always good for us to have good practices in our life. Like one of the things I think of is um, all of our staff members here at the church make it a point like if they're meeting with a woman or counseling with a woman, like that door is wide open, you know, and like there's just good practices. There's just good practices in place. And so that's what's happening there with all these people. And also there's this picture of unity because one of their names um, is Aristicus, sorry, I don't have it open, but his name is Aristicus, I think, and then Secundus. What's the root word of Aristicus? Aristocrat. And Secundus. Second. This guy would have, he doesn't even have a name because he's a, he was a former slave or a servant, and he was the second in command in his household. So then we see this playing field just leveled and the unity among the people even there. It's just so beautiful what was taking place um, in all of these verses. And By the grace of God, I get to teach you this lesson, and I joked about it two lessons ago. Um, Here we are a good, like, 15 minutes into six verses. (laughs) And I can just say that I really, really relate to Paul in his joy of teaching and going on and on and on. But the difference is no one's ever died. No one's ever died with me, and I've never gone to midnight. Well, kind of. Kind of. We do speak. We we have our overnight prayer, but I wasn't preaching the whole time, I promise. But Paul went on and on and on so much to the point where someone fell out of the window and died, right? After he prolonged his speech until midnight. And between the late night, after what would have been a long day at work, because we're told it's the first day of week, they take their day off the day before on Sabbath, right? So they would have worked all day. And then we're told about these fumes from the lamps, right? In verse eight. And we're told that there's a lot of lamps and these were oil lamps. 
and there was all these bodies in this place, so it was really warm. This guy Eutychus was just likely looking to get some fresh air from all of that that's going on. And he goes to the window and ultimately he falls asleep. And I'm thinking maybe he passed out a little bit. I don't know. And he falls to his death. And when they bring him up, like he is DEA D, dead. All the way dead. There's no speculation. This guy is dead. And this is one of those really cool moments in scripture when someone lives up to their God-given name because Eutychus translates as lucky or fortunate. (laughs) The irony, right? Because that he was. He was very fortunate that night because Paul, much like Elijah and Elijah, as we saw in our homework this week from the Old Testament, he took up this boy where he was very much dead and then he lived, right? He lived. He was resurrected. And as our homework pointed out, this was a complete miracle of God. Luke, who we now know is on the scene, right? He's present. He's a physician. Um, Nowhere was it mentioned that he ran to give this boy aid, this boy, this man, this young man, right? He didn't give this man aid. In fact, he might have been the very one to proclaim him dead because he is a doctor. Like, "Mm, check that pulse. Ooh, there's no air. He's all the way gone, you guys. And Our homework was just getting at the fact that Paul in this instance is just an instrument of God and his miraculous healing power that he poured out through Paul to do this miracle, right? It was God who brought this boy, this, I keep calling him boy, this guy back to life. Death was not about to put a damper on the sweet fellowship that was taking place that night. So I don't know if y'all caught this. But verse 7 is actually the first recorded instance of the church gathering on the first day of the week, which is Sunday, right? To fellowship and to worship together. And as we see, it would have been a sacrificial moment in their lives. It would have been a sacrificial meeting because they did work all day, right? And um, the reason they would have chosen to meet outside of synagogue, if that was in their normal routine, if they would, that they would have chosen to meet on Sunday is because that was the day that Jesus was resurrected. And how beautiful, how beautiful. Paul is leaving these people behind, right? Never to see them again. And if there was any doubt in their mind of the resurrection of Christ, they got to see it in this boy who God raised to life, albeit temporary again. He wasn't raised to eternal life necessarily. Yet. He was going to go die again, but they got to see that power of God before their very eyes so that they would always have that in the back of their head anytime doubt started to creep in, right? God is just so beautiful. And so just from that and how meeting together is truly a sacrifice. I was just reminded of Hebrews 10, 24 through 25 that says, let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good works, not neglecting to meet together as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another all the more as you see the the day drawing near. So it's a sacrifice to get up early and go to church. And it's a sacrifice to come on a Monday night and meet for Bible study. But it is one that is worth it because we get to come be edified and and do some edifying, right? So keep showing up, keep showing up. So we see that Paul and his travel buddies, they continue on their journey with their faces set to Jerusalem, um, trying to make it back in time for Pentecost. 
Now, we just read that they took up that offering, right? They took up all those donations. And one of the reasons they would have been heading back, Paul, to make it back for Pentecost was A, to um, join in on the feasting, but B, all those believers would be there hopefully in one place. And it would have been much easier to dole out all that money that they had taken up, right? So um, verse 13, we read that while everyone else was um, heading on the... Uh, getting on board the ship to head to the next city, which is Osas. I don't know how to say it without saying that word. So I'll just skip it. To the <laughs> to the next city. Um, yes, Paul chose to go by foot. And that just reminded me um, of the Gospels where Jesus took those moments to steal away, right? To go be with the Father and to pray. And I'm thinking here like... Paul has a lot on his mind, and he just needs a moment of solitude, right? He needs to just steal away with God, and that little walk down to the next city was just the thing he needed. So Paul gets on board the ship there, and unlike the other cities where they have been like stopping and dropping into the churches and talking, we see that Paul chooses to bypass Ephesus. And I think that having stayed there for three years, that would have made for a really time-delaying long goodbye right so he saved himself some time there but also like he just left behind some insanity there too and so he didn't want to go back and stir up some more trouble and have to be confronted with that at the same same time but he wasn't just going to jump ship completely on those people though as we read on um, to our next section verses 17 through 38 upon arriving at Miletos, just south of ephesus he sends for the ephesian elders there and he goes on to give his last encouragement to them before they hit the road or rather the water, you know, because they're selling. <laughs> um, and in most of Acts, this piece is really interesting because we get to see Paul and experience Paul the evangelist, right? The one proclaiming the good news. And we get to see all these snippets of what he said in Athens and in the synagogue and just all these different pieces. But here in these verses, this is the only moment where Paul addresses the Christians, right? And um, we get to see the heart of Pastor Paul, right? The pastoral heart of pastor that he had. And um, this, this section of scripture actually reads a lot like his epistles, right? Did y'all notice that? That the same kind of cadence that he has in the same words, it's much like one of his epistles or his other epistles. And in it, in this section, we get to see a glimpse of his heart for these people and get to see his heart for his mission too, right? Um, for all these people, like thousands, thousands of people he would have encountered along the way. And in his address to the elders um, of Ephesus, uh, verses 18 through 21, Paul, he holds out his ministry as an example for the Ephesian leaders. He says, you yourselves know how I lived among you the whole time from the first day that I set foot in Asia, serving the Lord with all humility, with tears and trials that happened to me through the plots of the Jews, how I did not shrink from declaring you anything that was profitable and teaching you in public and from house to house, testifying both to Jews and to Greeks of repentance toward God and of faith in our Lord Jesus. So Paul says, y'all, I put in my time house to house. Um, and I think it was the last chapter we read of the Hall of Tyrannius, or I don't know how to say that word, y'all, Tyrannus. That, that was a room that he would have rented out 
as a space for, for them to gather around the scriptures and like roll out the scrolls and put all the pieces together. Paul was committed and he said, with all humility, I've served you. Now, I can't tell you like... Paul's got a pure heart of gold here, y'all, because I can't look at you and say, with all humility, I have served each and every one of you. No, Paul was true in his mission and in his heart for what God had called him to. And he could stand up there and say that to those people. And they knew it was true. They weren't looking at him thinking like, oh, you weren't humble. He was. He was humble before them. And he says, with tears and trials, all that has happened to me, ministry is hard. And just from what we've seen so far, Paul's ministry has been hard. And just from the short time that we've been in ministry, um, me outside of devoted and coming up into devoted, but then in devoted, like it has been straight bonkers. And some of the stuff that has happened to us, you guys, you wouldn't even believe it. Some of it has been so off the wall, crazy. And that's exactly what Paul is saying here. Like, it's hard and I've poured my heart into it. I've poured my sweat and my tears. I've given it all, right? And and not only that, but he said, I didn't hold back anything from you that was profitable. That was for your good. I laid it all out there for you. I didn't fluff it up, right? I didn't make it sound warm and gushy, but I told you the hard things when hard things needed to be said. And then in verse 22 through 27, Paul spoke of his future prospects. Um, It says, now behold, I am going to Jerusalem constrained by the spirit, not knowing what will happen to me there, except that the Holy Spirit testifies to me in every city that imprisonment and afflictions await me. But I do not account my life of any value, nor as precious to myself, if only I may finish my course and the ministry that I receive from the Lord Jesus to testify to the gospel of the grace of God. And now behold, I know that none of you... None of you among whom I have gone about proclaiming the kingdom will see my face again. Therefore, I testify to you this day that I am innocent of the blood of all, for I did not shrink from declaring to you the whole counsel of God. So right there at the beginning, we see that Paul is a man bound by the spirit. If you went and looked in another translation, you would have seen that that word constrained. That's exactly what it meant. He is bound to the work of Christ. He is being led by the Holy Spirit to do what he um, is doing currently in going back to Jerusalem. And that in every city, Paul is receiving this prophecy that it's not good. And it's going to really actually suck when you get to Jerusalem, right? Like make no doubt about it. It's not going to be good. And we see that like Jesus, he willingly goes knowing that this is his truth before him and that he testifies to the gospel of the grace of God. It's just so beautiful. And then he gives that little heart punch there saying, you're never going to see me again. How sad. And then verse 26 kind of takes a turn, right? It says, therefore, I testify to you this day that I am innocent of the blood of all. And he says, for I did not shrink from declaring to you the whole counsel of God. Paul is saying from beginning to end, we poured over the scriptures and I connected the dots for you. I didn't leave anything out so that you could have room for doubt. And so if you somewhere along your line of living or someone else comes in and tries to teach you something else, I am innocent. I am innocent of your blood and what that might do if you let that happen. 
And then in verse 28 through 31, we see that Paul warned of coming heresies. Um, Verse 28 says, pay careful attention to yourselves and to all the flock in which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers to care for the church of God, which he obtained with his own blood. I know that after my departure, fierce wolves will come in among you, not sparing the flock. And from among your own selves will arise men speaking twisted things to draw away the disciples after them. Therefore be alert, remembering that for three years I did not cease night or day to admonish everyone with tears. So what's those first words he says here in these verses? Pay careful attention to who? Yourself. It is always about you and God first. Before you can ever look outside of the scope of your bubble, it is always about you being right with God and allowing the Holy Spirit to do a work in you before the Holy Spirit's going to use you to do a work in someone else, right? So then he calls them out and says, you're responsible for you, but now you're responsible for this flock, for this people that God has called you to be overseers of, right? There's this pastoral, pastoral, <laughs> I'm making up words, this pastoral element to what he's saying, that these sheep, they need tending and they need you to care for them. And here in verse 28, we actually see this kind of Trinitarian um, wording. He says, in which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers, right? So there's the Holy Spirit to care for the church of God, which would indicate God the Father. And then it says, which he had obtained with his own blood, which would have been the blood of Jesus. I thought that was really neat that he throws on a little Trinitarian doctrine there. Um, Verse 29, he says that there are fierce wolves that are going to come in from the outside, right? But the thing with the ones coming from the outside is you're actually probably going to be able to see them coming. So have your eyes open, be alert. You're going to recognize it, but it's the ones who are going to come up from the inside. Those are the ones you need to pay special attention to because it's going to be subtle and it's going to be minute and it's going to be a tiny twist of truth here and a tiny twist of truth there. And before you know it, you're so far from the real thing that you're all led astray. Keep your eyes open for these wolves, right? Because what is their main goal? These people coming from the inside, they're not looking to glorify God. They're looking to glorify themselves. It says to draw away the disciples after them. They want their own platform and they want the glory. So be alert. Um, And then again, I did not cease to admonish you. I didn't cease to speak the hard things, the hard corrections. Um, And some of it came with some pain on his part whenever it wasn't embraced immediately or it took some time or he really had to hammer it in there. And then verses 32 through 35, Paul encouraged a proper attitude toward um, worldly things, towards material goods. It says, now I commend you to God and to the word of his grace, which is able to build you up and give you the inheritance among all those who are sanctified. I coveted no one's silver or gold or apparel. You yourselves know that these hands ministered to my necessities and to those who were with me. In all things, I have shown you that by working hard in this way, we must help the weak and remember the words of the Lord Jesus, how he himself said, it is more blessed to give than to receive. So Paul can look them bold in the face, knowing like I have made some tents while I was among you. I put in the work from Sunday to Friday till Sabbath started at sundown, right? I toiled and not only did I provide for myself, 
and required nothing of you, never asked for your help for my provision, but I also helped those around me. So they could hold nothing over his head in that, and they would have seen him hard at work, right? They they knew that he was um, responsible for himself and that he provided his own way. And then we see these sweet words of Jesus on how it is more blessed to give than to receive. Now, I'm just curious, does does anybody know which verse that's referencing in the Gospels? No, you don't, because it's not in there. It's not in there. So remember at the end of the book of John, John says, "There's if we recorded everything Jesus said and did, there wouldn't be enough books in the world, right? And this is one of those instances where these are clearly the words of Jesus that had been passed down, and now Paul's repeating them, but they weren't necessarily recorded us recorded for us in the gospel, but we know it lines up with the truth of what Jesus always said, right? It's not contradicting to what he said. So I thought that was really cool. Um, And then moving on to verse 36 through 38, it says, when he heard these sayings, he knelt down and prayed with them all. And there was much weeping on the part of all. They embraced Paul and kissed him, being sorrowful most of all because of the word he had spoken, that they would not see his face again. And they accompanied him to the ship. How beautiful is that, y'all, in humility, like he just started with. He knelt down before them, and then they all gathered around in communal communal, communal prayer, and it was just beautiful. There's all the words I'm trying to put together in my brain. And they were sad. They were sad that he was going, and they're never going to see him again, because I can imagine to a lot of them, just like Timothy and Um, Titus, like he was like this father figure in teaching them the way, right? And so it's just so beautiful and they're all very sad and I can see why. And they walk him to the ship, right? They send him on his way. And moving on to chapter um, 21, verses 1 through 16. From Militas, we see that the group has made their way to Syria. And in making their way to Jerusalem, they stop in both Tyre and Caesarea. I say that different in my head every time. And each stop, they stay with the local churches there, right? And something interesting happens. The Spirit prophesies, just like Paul already said, the Spirit prophesies in every city he stops in that trouble is to come in Jerusalem. And it's not good. And we aren't actually given the details of what exactly was spoken in Tyre in verse 4. But in verse 10, we see that Agabus shows up for us again. Do y'all remember reading about Agabus in um, chapter 11, verse 8? Do y'all remember him? He's the one who prophesied about a famine to come. And he actually predicted that. And well, he prophesied about that. And then it came to pass. And so what the scripture, what, what Luke is doing here is that Agabus is a credible prophet for us to look at right now. We can take what he's saying and know like, hey, this is a man led by the spirit of God. Um, And he prophesied specifically that Paul would be bound by the Jews and delivered to the Gentiles. So once again, Paul's warned of this trouble awaiting him, right? And as we read in chapter 20, verse 23, um, it happened in every city he came to, whether through the prophets within the church or through personal revelation from the Holy Spirit, right? Through direct revelation. Paul knew what was coming. Paul knew clear as day what was coming and God was not going to let him be blindsided by what was coming for him upon his arrival in Jerusalem. But here in verse four is where we get an interesting take on what the Holy Spirit has been telling Paul all along. Did this catch all off guard any? 
verse four says through the spirit, they were telling Paul not to go to Jerusalem through the spirit. They're telling him not to go. Right. That doesn't make any sense because we know since leaving Ephesus, Paul knew what was coming. And and here in verse four is the Holy Spirit contradicting himself. And to that, I say, no, no, he is not because and we can see later where Paul will go on to instruct um, the believers in first Thessalonians 520 to not despise prophecy. Prophecy is good. Um, but he follows it up quickly in verse 21 to test everything test everything. And I think it is evident here that that's exactly what Paul is doing. Like we don't get the details of it, but Paul knows that God is taking him to Jerusalem and that these people were testifying of what is true. They're prophesying what is true, that hard things are coming in Jerusalem. But what they're doing is they're allowing their emotions and their human logic to get in the way of what God was truly doing. He wasn't telling them that that persecution was coming to deter Paul, but just as a means of like, hey, in case you doubt it at all, like I'm telling you again. And so they added their own human interpretation on top of the prophecy that the Holy Spirit gave them. So Paul knew that hard thing was going to come. And um, to these people, the obvious action is inaction, right? Don't go. Don't walk into your death. But we know that Paul is a man bound. He is a man bound by the spirit. And he was obedient to what God was calling him to. And that obedient, it led to his commitment to um, the hard things that were to come. And this pull, though, that from his brothers and saying, like, don't go, it's not good. It, it wasn't easy for him to embrace that. Right. And we read in verse 13, he said, what are you doing, weeping and breaking my heart? For I am ready not only to be in prison, but even to die in Jerusalem for the name of the Lord Jesus. Paul was a man bound and committed and full of faith. And I don't know if this is echoing from the gospels at all but this is kind of the same path that jesus was on right he knew what was to come and yet he pressed on anyways in tears and turmoil that it was hard and then verse 14 says and since he would not be persuaded we we see luke as part of this do not go train um we ceased and said let the will of the lord be done and y'all god's will will be done. And we can choose to partner with him in that, or we can choose to fight and fight him in that. And it's still going to happen. Right. So we can, um, relinquish control and do our part and embrace our faith and let God do the leading and then ultimately come out saying, let the will of the Lord be done. So, however, concerning prophecies in our own life, I don't know if anybody's ever had a, I have a word from the Lord kind of message come to you. And, those are good and we should receive them. But just like that passage in first Thessalonians, then we need to test them, right? Because God at times is going to use to uh, choose to use our friends and our family or even complete strangers to speak to us, to speak um, according to his promise or speak something specific. God works in mysterious ways, right? As if we haven't seen that up until this point in this book. Um, and our hearts and our minds, they need to be receptive to that and to what he might want to speak to us through others. But we should always, always, always take whatever is spoken to us to God in prayer for ourselves and test it, test it. 
and we test it according to the word, is it contradicting anything in scripture? Like you can take whatever they said and throw it in the trash, if it is. Um, we can take previous things that he has spoken to us, any kind of direct revelation that he's given us. Um, and if it's contradicting to that, like mm, maybe I don't need to hear what you have to say, right? Or just our good old fashioned discernment that we have um, given to us by God through discernment or through the Holy Spirit. So. That's a whole lesson in itself. And if y'all want to get coffee and talk about that later, we can, because that's a good time too. So really quick before we move on though, and yes, I'm sorry, we're still here. Please no one die. <laughs> we're given a beautiful glimpse into the life of Philip. And we read that um, from chapter eight, verse 40, um, we're, we're told that he's one of the seven, one of those seven that was put in charge of distributing the food, right? To all the widows. It's This is that same Philip. Um, he apparently found himself in Caesarea. I say it wrong every time. And um, he made his home there, right? And he had four daughters who were prophetesses. So apparently he's doing a good and training up his child, his children in the way that they should go. And um, not only that, but they've got this really cool job and like title of prophetess. And he himself is called Philip the Evangelist. What a testament to the fact that he was embracing his individual call on his life um, by God. And it just goes to show that we can't compare our callings whenever it comes to what God calls us to do, right, um, in his kingdom, because each is unique and it's beautiful. Where Paul was called to, like, cover some ground and travel, Philip was called to grow roots and to stay planted and, and speak into the region of that world. But neither of them, even though their roles were different, neither of them forsook their responsibility to speak and to proclaim the good news that the kingdom of God is at hand and that kingdom could be entered through um, faith in Jesus and believing in all that he has done. So real quick, moving on to verses 17 through 26, we see that his Paul's third missionary journey is coming to an end as he finally arrives in Jerusalem. And we read that he's greeted by the brothers there and that he relates to them one by one all the things that God had done among the Gentiles in his ministry. And I just can you all imagine getting to hear Paul's testimony from Paul himself like, wow, wow. In it, we would have seen that heart that was echoed in that letter um, or in that little excerpt to the church, uh, to the elders of Ephesus. And man, just all of the goodness, all of the goodness that he would have seen God do, but then also all of the hard things all of the hard things he testified to the good, the bad, and the ugly. And it just makes me think back to that first song we, we sang, look what God has done. That's exactly what Paul was doing for them there and saying like, look at all that God did in my time there. So how could these people not respond with glorifying God as we uh, see in verse 20, right? We see that he spills his guts, tells them every little detail and they glorify God. So beautiful. So with no time to waste, though, after all this testimony time and then glorifying God, they waste no time to let them know that trouble has been brewing in his absence and that the believers there um, very much Jewish, right? They're still embracing the law and they're still kind of bound 
to the law in a lot of ways. And not only that, but they've been speaking some bad rumor kind of junk against Paul, saying that Paul has been ultimately anti-Jewish. And, and they're trying to say that Paul was teaching people to forsake the Jewish tradition and forsake the law, forsake all the Jewish things, right? And we know that's not what he's doing because we saw he himself in just our last lesson that, or not last lesson, but in chapter 18, that he himself participated in a Nazarite vow or what we think was a Nazarite vow. He embraced the law and still let it um, guide his life. In fact, he was digging into it. Like that's what he was doing that whole time he was gone was putting all those pieces together for these people. And so ultimately the elders decide that it would be good for Paul to um, undergo another Nazarite right vow and to even provide the sacrifices, provide the money for the sacrifices for, for other guys who are doing it as a means to just show them like, Hey, this isn't true. Like all these rumors that are going around, it's all just false. It's all just for division. And, um, Paul being true to his word in first Corinthians, um, chapter nine, 19 through 20, he says to the Jews, he became a Jew. This is the, this is that very thing in order to what, to win the Jews to those under the law. He became as one under the law, though not being himself under the law that I might win those under the law. So ultimately, Paul was not going to allow these Jewish believers um, to use Paul as a stumbling block. He wasn't going to let it happen. And so he submitted to this plan of the elders to prove his innocence regarding all of these false accusations. And then lastly, lastly, I'm wrapping up, I promise. Verses 27 through 36, our last verses, I promise. <laughs> um, but it's not in the text this time. But remember, in all our other instances, whenever we're like shifting, we get like that big old but, but because we know opposition is coming. I feel like it's missing here, maybe, because <laughs> opposition is on the horizon and has reared its ugly head. It says, verse 27, uh, when the seven days were almost completed, they're referring to that Nazarite vow, that Nazarite ceremony he was taking part of, the Jews from Asia seeing him in the temple. So these were the very Jews that Paul would have likely encountered week after week for three months in the synagogue at Ephesus um, in chapter 19. The ones who were stubborn, right, that would not receive the word and who um, like took it up a notch and spoke evil of the way. Um, and if you remember, he was there for three years. So whenever he like shook his garments off and did his little dramatic scene and stomped out of synagogue, um, they still would have been seeing him around and seeing him flip their world upside down and pulling people away from, from their um, leadership, right? So these people, they recognized him. They recognized him and they did not like him. So they stirred up the whole crowd and laid hands on him. Does this sound familiar? <laughs> They're inciting another riot and they're using violence. And to this, I'm like, I'm not even surprised at this point. Like we should just expect it, that it's going to get ugly and it's going to get um, brutal. And then verse 28, it says, crying out, men of Israel, help. <laughs> this is the man who is teaching everyone everywhere against the people and the law in this place. So y'all that help, <laughs> like as if Paul is a mass murderer or something and he's just out to get him. I just can't with that one. They make 
So in, in the rest of that sentence, they're making three huge claims about what Paul is against here to base their claim. They say that he's against the people, which would have been, they, would, were, they were referring to Israel, right? Um, Abraham's line of descendants. And then secondly, they were, um, he's against the law, specifically the Torah. And then thirdly, he was against this place, this temple, and the Jews, they took their identity as God's chosen people, they took the law, and they took the temple very seriously, very seriously. So whenever they're saying help, like they're doing all these things against these three things, like they got people's attention. And um, it's funny, however, to note that never once did they mention how Paul was in violation to God. It was these things, right? Which then goes on to reveal the issue that Paul had been addressing among the Jews the entire time in his ministry. The claims that they made against Paul here were false, completely false. Paul was not against Israel. He was not against the law or the temple. Paul was a Jew and he would have held these things in high esteem, right? As he should have as a Jewish man. Paul pointed out that these people, they had put their faith in these things rather than the God of those things. He is the God of Jacob, right? And he is the God who would have resided in the temple. He is the God who wrote the law, who gave Moses a law. And instead they're looking a notch below and not seeing God for who he is and had turned to worshiping those things rather than God. So we see from this that rituals and religion, they're empty. And it gave me this one. And that God, he calls us to redemption and relationships. That is what they had been missing out on. And then to heap on some more lies, they go on to say, moreover, he brought Greeks into the temple and has uh, defiled this holy place. So at this point, they're all in the inner court of the temple, which was a big no-no for Gentiles. And it was even punishable by death. And the Romans had even given the Jewish people the authority to like kill people if they violated this law, even if they were Roman citizens. And I don't know if you remember, but being a Roman citizen was a big deal. And they had a lot of um, weight in their citizenship. And so verse 9, we know that they made this accusation up because verse 29 says that they supposed that Paul brought the, his Gentile friend in with him from the temple. And if you go and read in any other versions in the NIV and specifically the NLT, it says that they assumed. They assumed on making this accusation that was going to get Paul killed. These people were ruthless and had no moral standards to what they were doing. So we see that a riot is incited, right? These people are zealous for these three things, for the law and for the temple and in their identity as God's chosen ones. And so remember why they were looking to make it to Jerusalem? Pentecost, right? So not only were there just a lot of people, but there was like a lot of people because of the influx of people making the pilgrimage. And they were beating him. And as soon as they see the Romans coming, they like throw up their hands like, it wasn't me. It wasn't me. And they stopped beating him. And we see in verse 33 that the tribune came up and arrested him and ordered him to be bound with two chains, which is what? Fulfillment of Agabus's prophecy. 
and then the Roman tribune like tries to make some sense of stuff and a lot like Ephesus the confusion is on all these people and he can't even make sense of what's going on and so protectively he like take Paul he takes Paul out right and orders him to be brought into the barracks and Verse 35 and 36, where we're ending, says when he came to the steps, he was actually carried by the soldiers because of the violence of the crowd. Verse 36, for the mob of the people followed, crying out, away with him. Let me read you Luke 23, 18. But they all cried out together, away with this man and released to us Barabbas. The people were calling out for Paul's death, just like they were calling out for Jesus's. They didn't just want him imprisoned or punishment or even beaten. Like they weren't after this. They were after his death. They wanted to end him. And this all along is what Paul had been committed to, what he was bound by the spirit to. And so much so that he is literally bound, right? Whenever he reaches his destination and he knows that death at this moment is a very real possibility. And I just want to end with Philippians 3, 10 through 11, that says that I may know him and the power of his resurrection and may share his sufferings, becoming like him in his death, that by any means possible, I may attain the resurrection from the dead. Paul had hope. Death was imminent, but he knew it wasn't the end and that he would be raised to walk in the newness of life after a physical death. And so his hope is ultimately in Christ and his work on the cross and in his resurrection from the dead. So may that be our hope as well. Whenever the hard things of life come and persecution and suffering happens, knowing that death, it's not the end. It's not the end and we can have hope in Jesus and his work. So y'all get out of here. I'm not even going to pray. So have a great night. Thanks for listening to me and not passing out dead. (laughs) 